Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 111, and we're going to discuss the top 10 challenges in van life. Those things that are obstacles to you doing what you want to do and possible solutions on how to overcome them. We're also going to talk about dome lights and, yes, dome lights, a tale from the road involving a very strange shrimp, a product review of the Renji Rover MPBT solar controller, and a place to visit that's Tatooine, like I promised two weeks ago and actually never talked about. Sorry about that. Anyway, welcome everybody. Thank you very much for joining me here on this very wintry Wednesday morning. I'm taking a break from working on my strange IKEA bed bookcase combination, and hopefully by next week I'll be able to tell you how that project went. Right now I think it's going pretty well, but I'm at that point where I need to decide, do I just install the bed, or do I tear down everything and put up insulation, and uh, you know how it is. If you've ever built out a van, you know exactly how that is. Building out a van, living in a van... Is challenging. It has challenges. And heck, let's talk about some of those and see if we can come up with some solutions so that these things do not prevent you from doing what you want to do, which is the entire point of van life. So I have a top 10 list here, and I don't know why it's the top 10. It's the 10 I could think of. There's probably 800 more, and they're in no particular order. So I'm just going to dive right in. Number one, packages. How do you get packages when you are not in a particular place all the time? Fortunately, in this day and age, this problem is fairly easy to solve. You just have to have a little bit of planning. Amazon has drop boxes at Whole Foods all across the country and in many other places. And you can simply, when you buy the thing, tell it to ship it to one of these boxes. You just have to find the one that you're closest to. And because you get text messages and such when these things are delivered, you know that, hey, your package was delivered and here it is waiting for you with this box. You don't have to be there. You can go there a day later. There is a, a window. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it will sit in that box for a time period that you are allowed to go pick it up. But okay, maybe you don't like Amazon. You think Jeff Bezos is a big jerk. You don't want to use his service that he actually isn't part of anymore. What are your other options? Well, UPS also has boxes like this. You can have packages delivered to UPS stores, and they do have these banks of boxes all over the country. You can find a list of those online and, again, have a package delivered there. And it's ultimately the same thing as Amazon. You can get a notification. If you create an account on UPS, they will update you where your package is. And it's kind of funny. Here in Chicago, I'm getting notices like your package is two hours away. And even in cases, your package is six stops away. They're getting that granular. So you'll always know where it is. You just need to plan, like, let's say you're staying out in BLM land. You buy this thing, and it says it's going to be delivered on Tuesday. You just have to plan to go into town on Tuesday, and that's it. You don't have to worry about being there. So that is pretty good. Now, if you're in someplace really rural that doesn't have UPS or Amazon boxes or Whole Foods, you know, you're 300 miles from a Whole Foods, you still have an option, and that is called general delivery. And this is the oldest option of all. Some post offices will accept what's called general delivery, and you have something mailed there to your name at that post office's address. And it will just sit there and wait for you. The nice thing about general delivery is they will hold on to the package longer than anybody else. The bad thing is that you have to go there when it's open, and you have to wait in line, and then you have to show your ID and all this stuff. But hey, it's an option. So getting packages while you're on the road 
It's a little bit of a hassle, but it's definitely not a major deal. At least not like it used to be. It just takes time. And tied into that, number two, a permanent address. Now, there are things you need an address for. You've got a new credit card coming. Where are they going to mail that actual piece of plastic to? You need to renew your driver's license. I mean, yes, folks, you're still going to need a driver's license, and that's going to have an address on it. What address is that? Legally, you need to have an address. Now, local laws and state laws vary. It's all over the place, so I'm not even going to get into the specifics of the law. But here are some ideas on how to get a permanent address. The first thing you should do, of course, is if you have this option, is ask your family simply to hold your mail. If you have a family member with a house or apartment that isn't going anywhere anytime soon... Ask them if, hey, can I make this my permanent address? It's no legal obligation on them. They are just going to get your mail. That's really all it is. And if it's somebody you can trust who's supportive, they can actually sort your mail and throw out the junk mail and then maybe send you pictures of the mail you need. That works really well. It's probably the best option if you have that. If you don't have family that can do that, maybe you have a friend that can do that. But not everybody has that. So what are your other options? Well, RVers have had these things for years, which is that they're services you pay for that will take your mail for you. It's basically a P.O. box that will take your mail and they'll sort it out. And nowadays, they'll even scan your mail for you. You give them instructions like, if it's from the government, go ahead and scan it and send it to me. If it's from the AARP or somebody that mails you 800 times a week, you can just throw those out. And so those services do exist. This is a problem. You do need to sort out where your permanent address is going to be. You can't just hit the road and expect to live life as a free citizen of not a member of any state. I know people try to do that. It doesn't work out too well in many cases. Number three, you need to know an awful lot to do the van life. Or you need to have a whole lot of money. You have to have one or the other. I mean, if you think about it, if you are living in a van, you're going to be pretty much self-sufficient. And that means you need to know how to be a plumber, an electrician, a mechanic, an engineer. You need to do some off-road recovery sometimes. I mean, basically, you need to know how to solve all the problems that come up that people living in sticks and bricks houses would normally hire somebody to do. Now, if you've got a lot of money, yeah, you can hire people to do all these things, but it's going to be a hassle. Finding a plumber to work on your water pump in your van is going to be pretty difficult unless you go to an RV dealer like Camping World or something like that. And finding an electrician to work on your rig, especially if all the wiring's in there and there's something wrong, boy, that is going to be really hard because household electricians don't want anything to do with your van and you're probably going to have to find something like a car stereo place and that's going to be very expensive. And mechanics are actually probably the easiest thing to find in all these things, but that's not all that helpful if you're broken down 300 miles from the nearest one. So make sure you have a plan for what happens when things break down, whether they're mechanical to the van or something that is in the back of the van. You need a plan for how you're going to deal with that. If you don't have the know-how, well, consider getting it. All right, number four, loneliness. This is a very individual thing. I know a lot of people hit the van life to get away from people. They like being out there. They like the solitude. And I'm, I'm pretty much one of those people. I'm very happy to be by myself. But not everybody is. And not everybody is all the time. Some people want to go out and spend six days by themselves. But on that Saturday night, they really want to hang out with friends and do something fun. Just know that social interactions on the road are very different because you're not in the same place all the time. Now, we live in an age where social media provides a lot of social interaction for us. I mean, I can't even remember the last time I went and hung out with anyone other than my wife, who I live with. 
I do almost all my social interaction online. I keep track of all my friends, we talk, we chat, we play games, it's all online. And that world obviously is still available to you so long as you have a signal. Another option you have is van life meetups, and there are a lot of them, and boy, I have a hard time tracking them down. I wish I could just give you guys a link that says, here's all the van life meetups coming up in the U.S. over the next six months, and I can't find anything like that. I usually find out about these things after the fact, so... If you can be of any assistance here, I would really appreciate it. If you know of a van life meetup in 2022, just send me a note saying, hey, a bunch of folks are meeting up here, or a big event is happening here, Van Fest is here, Schoolie Palooza, which just ended, is over here. Those types of things can really scratch that social itch for a lot of people. And what's nice is that they're temporary. You know, you can do that and then go and be in solitude again. Or... If you are the kind of person that always wants to be traveling with a group of people, there are caravans. There are groups of people that just will travel together all across the country. And Bob Wells' group does help organize these things. But again, it's very difficult for me to find these things. It's, it's their own little secret worlds, and I'm, I'm having trouble figuring it out. And I'm, I'm learning that it isn't Facebook. <laughs> they're not on Facebook. Somebody said they're all on Meetup, but I couldn't find them there. So hmm. anyway, caravans is another option. Now, one of the biggest daily challenges, which is uh, number five on my list here, is temperature. In most households today, you just have a thermostat in the wall and you set it to whatever you want. Oh, I want it to be 72. Doesn't matter if it's air conditioning or heat, whatever. It's just going to always be about 72 in your in your house. And you will never have that experience in your van. No, your van is going to be a much bigger range of temperatures and you're going to be much less able to control it. And this requires an adjustment. This is one of the reasons I say that the people who do best at van life are the people who do well at camping, because it is that type of experience. So you could have days in the 90s and nights in the 60s, and you need to adjust during the day. You need to change your clothing during the day. You need to change how you ventilate your van during the day. It is an adjustment. But it can be done, unless you're somebody who is super sensitive to temperature, and and there are those folks. This is just an adjustment. There's no real fix for it. I would argue that it is much better to teach yourself how to deal with being uncomfortable in temperature, which can be done, rather than try to fix the temperature problem, especially when it comes to air conditioning, because trying to find a way to air condition your van all the time is very costly, and it's likely to be frustrating. Number six, (laughs) I don't even have to talk about this one because you'll figure it out very quickly. Storage. You ain't got none. You do not have a basement that can just hold all your empty boxes. You don't have an attic you can throw stuff in and forget. You don't have any of that. You have your 100 square foot van, if you're lucky that it's that big, and that's it. That's your whole world. You will always, always, always be looking for places to put things. And this requires some discipline. You need to get rid of things you don't need. You need to always be thinking, where am I going to put this thing? And always work on strategies for storage. Every van life person will tell you this. Storage is huge. So just know that if you're going from a 5,000 square foot house with your collection of tchotchkes that takes up an entire room, you're going to have to change a few things to do some van life. Number seven is a little odd, and I have to talk about this a little bit. You will not have the same feeling of safety that you have in a house or an apartment. Now, I am saying feeling of safety. I'm not talking about actual safety here. 
There is a feeling that you get when you go home in your apartment or house and shut the door and throw the deadbolt and then go into your bedroom, shut that door and lock it too maybe. That feels very safe and secure and it's really difficult to duplicate that in a van because even if you get in your van and lock the door and crawl under the covers, you know you're still in a van that is parked somewhere and someone can drive up right next to you. No matter what, someone can always drive up right next to you. That just doesn't tend to happen very often in bedrooms. This feeling is, it's esoteric, it's weird, and the more time you spend in the van, the less this will become an issue. But when you first start out, at least this is my experience, there is this little bit of on-edgeness about not having that safe space. And again, I'm not talking about actual safety. I think van life is very, very safe. I'm talking about that feeling of safety. So be prepared for that feeling to come and know that it will go away in time. And every time you have some sort of an incident, like you get a knock on the door or someone pulls up next to you and starts a party in the parking lot, as I have had happen, it kind of resets a bit and you have to give it some more time. I have never been on the road for more than a month, but from what I hear, the people who have been on the road for months at a time say after about three weeks, you get very comfortable in the van. But I still don't think it's ever going to be the same as being in a house or an apartment. Number eight, the most common question of all, money, employment. What are you going to do to support yourself? Yeah, you're going to need to overcome this problem. Now, there's basically three ways to do it. Solve the problem before you leave. Save up a nest egg so you have time to solve the problem when you're on the road. Or just panic and get out there and hope for the best. And I certainly don't recommend that option, but I understand that there are people who have no other choice. Now, we live in a time where it is easier now to make money on the road than ever before. There are all kinds of remote jobs you can do. There's all kinds of gig economy jobs like DoorDash and Uber, which would be interesting to do in a van. There's things you can do that will get you money that you didn't that you couldn't have done 10 or 20 years ago. So again, this is just a problem to overcome, but definitely have a plan. I mean, you're ultimately you would have a job that you were established in before you started doing the van life. That would be the best thing to do. But failing that, at least come up with a nest egg so you have some time to figure it out. I know a lot of people who've started the van life and then just never figured it out and they ran out of money and then had to go find a place to live somewhere. You don't want to be in that situation. You want to be able to choose that moment when you stop van life. So save up money or find a job before you go if you have that option. Number nine is a little bit tricky to talk about. Um, it's your sense of self-worth can come under attack when you're in a van. You know the old SNL skit, you're going to live in a van down by the river, and we joke about how that's our goal now, rather than something to be ashamed of. But there is still a chance that you can feel shame living in a van. Oh, you're homeless. Oh, you're not a success. Oh, you're... You couldn't afford to live in a house, so you're living, you know, there's all that stuff, and you're going to get some negative pressure like that from society, no matter what. You have to be able to deal with that. Now, for me, <laughs> living in a van by choice is one of the greatest opportunities we have. I think it's wonderful. I see somebody who's living in a van, I'm like, wow, good for you. You're really going after it. You're really taking control of life. Carpe diem, all that stuff, that's what I see. But not everybody sees it that way. Some people just are horrified by that idea. Eh, okay, let them be horrified. Your self-worth should not depend on what those people think of you. 
take a step back and consider, am I doing what I want to do, or am I on the road to doing what I want to do, literally and figuratively? And if you can answer those questions, yes, congratulations, you are a success. You have attained the highest level a human can, (laughs) because that's what the game is about. The game isn't about collecting the most things, it's not about collecting the most money, it's about having the most fulfilled life, and you can absolutely do that in a van. You can have a $10,000 van and do that, you can have a $300,000 van and do that. The cost of the van isn't the thing, it's that you want to be in a van traveling and you are. That's where the success comes from. And the last one, and this is one that's often ignored, especially by young people, but is something that's much more on my mind as I age, and that is health. You've got two big health challenges when you're in your van. The first is health insurance. If you're in the United States, this remains an enormous issue where if you have a major illness, you're probably going to go bankrupt unless you have good health insurance. And even with good health insurance, you're going to be out of pocket for tens of thousands of dollars sometimes. The rest of the world isn't like this. It's a uniquely American problem. I don't know why we can't fix it, but it exists. So there are some solutions. There are two tricks I know of for getting health insurance if you're not getting it through your employment. One is is Obamacare that still exists. You can still sign up for insurance that way. It does tend to be a bit expensive, but in the long run, it's probably worth it. Again, this is insurance. This is money you pay so that if you have something really bad happen, you will be okay. It's, It's a little bit of gambling, but what you're gambling with here is your health. It's kind of a big deal. The other trick, and this is something I've actually used myself, was to join an association that offered health insurance. And a common one of those is a chamber of commerce. So if you create a business and some of then they have different requirements. Some of them require you to have an LLC, but that's really not a big deal. It's just a matter of filing a form. You can join the chamber of commerce And then you will be part of their group, and then you will be eligible for their group insurance. Again, it's not terribly cheap, but it is a way to get actual insurance. Also, for those of you traveling in the Southwest for actual health care, don't be afraid to go to Mexico for health care. Their health care is excellent, and it's a whole lot less money. If you need some sort of a procedure done, and it's not covered by insurance, and it's going to cost you fifteen dollars or $20,000, you will save a lot of money down in Mexico if that works out for you. So especially for dentistry and optical stuff, those also are great to go down there for. So food for thought, but definitely think about that. Have a plan for your health and what you're going to do, because it's an important thing and it's something that's often overlooked. So there's the top 10 challenges in van life, which is basically just a list I pulled out of thin air. And I hope it gives you some perspective and absolutely does not dissuade you from doing anything that you want to do. That is not the point of the list. The list is to help you overcome some hurdles that you're going to have. Tech Talk. A while ago, I talked about dome lights in vans. So, all right, so you buy a cargo van, and in the back there are these dome lights, and usually they work if you open the door, the lights go up, and that's fine, okay? But you're refinishing the back of your van, and you've got some fancy LED lights and all this, and these dome lights are kind of a pain. Like, what if you want to sleep with the door open? The dome light stays on. What do you do? You know... So in the past, I gave the advice that you should just rip them out if you don't want them, because they're really not complicated things. They're just lights. Just cut them out and you're done. Somebody recently pointed out to me that my information on that was a little bit vague, so I want to revisit that. So the Typically, in most vans, the dome light in the back of the van has exposed wires. You can usually see it. And those wires are attached to 
the ground somewhere, either directly to the ground or just grounded out to the body of the van, the battery through a fuse box, and to a switch in the door so that when the door is open, it will turn on. And the idea is that you can turn it on yourself with a switch, that's where it gets power straight from the battery, or there's another switch in the door. It's technically a three-way switch. If you have a light in your house that you can turn on with two different switches, that's the same way that dome lights work. Now, when I said that you could just rip them out if you don't want it, I mean the actual light. You can just take that light out if you don't want it. And most of them unplug. You don't actually have to cut wires. You can usually just unplug them and then tape off the plugs and then forget about them. But somebody pointed out that my advice could be taken the wrong way and people would remove everything like the switches in the doors. Don't remove the door switches. <laughs> to be very clear about this. Those door switches do more than just turn on the dome lights in many vans. If your van has an alarm, or if your van has an immobilizer, or if your van has a light on the dash that says the door's open, it's getting that information from that same switch. So if you remove that switch, you're going to have problems with all that stuff. And that's a nightmare. You don't want to get into that. So if you do want to remove your dome light, you have a bunch of options. I mean, you can literally just take the light bulb out and stuff it into the ceiling. That's an option too. Or you can unplug it and remove it. Or you can actually cut the wires right at the dome light and tape them up. But don't mess with the switches in the doors. That's very important. They do things that might be unpredictable and might be costly to fix. Tales from the road. So I've been to many different colleges. I think by the time I got my degree from Georgetown, I'd been to eight different colleges or something. Yeah, that's not the story. But one of those colleges I went to was Barry University in Miami Shores, Florida. And while I was staying there, my parents and I did the math and figured out that it would be cheaper to buy a condo than to actually pay to stay in the dorms. This was in the 80s. Condos were fairly cheap down there. And yeah, why not own a piece of property? And so I got to stay in a condo on Miami Beach while I went to school, which was pretty luxurious for a 20-year-old kid in college. And I had always wanted an aquarium, and I, you know, I, I still was a college kid, right? So I'm living in this condo right on the beach, but still didn't have a whole lot of money. I had a job packing groceries at the supermarket, but I wanted an aquarium. And, you know, aquariums are expensive to maintain and keep. So I thought, well, I live next to the ocean. What if I just get a tank and I'll get an aerator and I'll just catch my own fish? And I didn't mean go out there with a rod and reel. I meant I would just figure out ways to find some fish. And, and I did. I found all kinds of little fish just kind of in pools and that I could catch with my hands. I mean, even telling the story now, it sounds crazy, but it's literally what I did. I would catch them in cups and then bring them back, and then I had this whole little local ecosystem aquarium. It was actually kind of cool. I had whelks, I had a little starfish, it was, it was very nice. Uh, one day, I was actually, I wasn't on the beach. Miami Beach is a barrier island, if you're not familiar with Miami geography. So there's water on both sides of it, and there's the ocean, and then there's the intercostal, as they call it. And one day I was out on the intercostal on the rocks looking for some sea life, and I found what I thought was a baby lobster. This looked just like a main lobster, except it was maybe the size of my little finger, and it was going in and out of this hole under a rock. And I caught it, it was very cute, and I brought it to my aquarium and put it in the tank, and it instantly made its own little house under a rock, and it looked very happy there. And I fed it shrimp. I would buy shrimp and throw little pieces of shrimp in it, and it would come out and grab the shrimp. It was very cute. It was, it was one of my favorite things that I have ever had as a pet. 
But every once in a while in the apartment, I would hear this loud noise, like a click or a snap. Just very loud. And it seemed to come from the aquarium. I could not figure out what was doing that. I thought maybe the pump was getting stuck or something. I could not figure out what little fish in this tank could be making this noise. I mean, the, the fish were tiny, tiny things. And I thought maybe the temperature was changing and the rocks were settling. I, I had no idea. And in truth, I never figured it out because sadly, a few months after I had the aquarium, I tried to move it and shattered the glass and then <laughs> very quickly gathered all the life in there, put it in a bucket and took it back to the beach and let it all go. <laughs> so that's how the aquarium ended. But that's not where the story ends. Years later, while kayaking on Sanibel Island, I noticed that in the mangroves, that if you kayaked through, you could hear this sound that sounded like Rice Krispies. Now, Rice Krispies, if you poured milk on Rice Krispies, snap, crackle, pop, it makes noise. That same noise would come up, like, through the boat. And I was like, what is making that noise? And so I did a bunch of research, and I actually bought a hydrophone to record the noise. I had a recorder, and I dropped the hydrophone down and recorded the noise, and I found out exactly what it was. And it is this thing called pistol shrimp. And they look like little lobsters, hint, hint. And they have this really big claw that locks back like a gun and then shoots a bubble like a gun. They shoot bubbles with their claws. It's the craziest thing ever. And these bubbles are so fast that they produce light. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They create a cavity in the water that, when it collapses, is such a strong force that it actually creates light and heat that's hotter than the sun. I know, at this point, you think I'm just making stuff up, but it's actually true. It's not a lot of heat. We're talking about temperature here, not amounts of energy. But it's very hot and bright, and it stuns fish, and that's how pistol shrimp eat. And it turns out that the Navy has known about pistol shrimp for years because 30% of the noise they hear on submarines when they're patrolling out there comes from pistol shrimp. Anyway, that's what I had caught. It was not a baby lobster. It was a pistol shrimp, and that's what I had in my aquarium, and that's what was making those loud noises every once in a while. Wow. So yeah, uh, the next time you're kayaking out in the mangrove somewhere and you hear the snap, crackle, pop sound, know that it's a bunch of little shrimp breaking the sound barrier and producing light with their claws. Product review. Let's talk about the Renogy Rover MPPT solar controller. I've had a couple of these things now. This is a standard, good quality solar controller and I'm going to recommend them for anybody just starting out with solar. This is probably a really good starting point. Now, it's not the cheapest. You can get a pulse wave modulating PWM controller for a lot cheaper, but they're not as good. If you're going to have more than one panel or you're going to have sizable panels, anything over 100 watts, definitely get an MPPT controller because they're just much more sophisticated and they'll just give you more power over time. Now, Renogy's reputation varies. I hear they're great. I hear they're terrible. But the quality of their stuff seems to be good. Customer service seems to be where they may have some issues. I've not had to deal with it, fortunately, because their controllers have just worked for me. 
It's a fairly large controller, so it does take up space. It's the size of a cake mix box at the store, like approximately. So that is kind of a pain. I had a hard time installing it in my NV200 because it was so big. But it has a really nice screen. The screen lets you see everything that's going on. It does take a little interpretation. You do have to study to know what's going on there. But it does tell you very clearly how much solar is coming in, how much power is going out, the state of your battery charge, all this stuff. And because of that, I mounted mine front and center in my ambulance so I can see it clearly. Now, there is a Bluetooth app for this thing, but there's a catch. You have to buy a Bluetooth module that's $40 that you have to hook up for this. I am not a fan of that. Bluetooth chips are tiny these days. They don't cost much. Come on, Renergy, why are you making us buy this other module just to talk to your app? I know why, so you can make more money. But the app is basically a duplication of the screen on the device itself, and it has logging and things like that. And it's nice because you can be anywhere near your van and then see how the solar is doing. I mean, even from my condo, I can pull up the app, like see what the voltage of my batteries is from 100 feet away which is great. They, they come in different ratings. There's you know, They come in different amp ratings. There's 20 amp, 30 amp, 40 amp, I think. And you want to pick one based on how much solar you're doing. And, and don't forget that when with solar, you can wire it in series or parallel, and that either will increase your voltage or your amps. So you have to get one that matches your system. But honestly, folks, it's it's pretty easy to install. Everything seems to work. And if you're just frustrated with all the different options you have, go ahead and get a Renogy Rover and it will be perfect for you for the life of your van. I mean, you aren't going to need a better controller than this unless you get a lot more solar and then this isn't big enough. I'll have a link in the show notes. Their prices vary a lot, so if this is something you have time to wait for, go ahead and set a watch on it and then wait till it goes down in price. But I've used them basically my entire van life and they've never given me a problem. So that's the Renogy Rover MPPT Solar controller a place to visit yes folks it is time to visit tatooine <laughs> i'm sorry to have teased this two episodes ago and forgot to mention it okay so star wars believe it or not was filmed on planet earth i know shocking right <laughs> yeah well so you can go visit the places where star wars was filmed and you may know that star wars was filmed in tunisia but that's not what i'm talking about yes a lot of it was filmed in tunisia but the opening scenes right after the big battle with the Star Destroyer and the Rebel Runner were filmed in California. They were filmed at a place called Stovepipe Wells, which is in Death Valley. And it's one of the easiest places to get to in Death Valley. This is maybe 90 minutes from Vegas. And you can actually have a nice trip where you go from Vegas and then go to Beatty and visit Rhyolite Ghost Town. And then as soon as you head into Death Valley and follow that road down, you're basically going to be in Stovepipe Wells. It's one of the biggest places in Death Valley that has, you know, it has a store, it has gas that's going to be probably $7 a gallon, but you should get some anyway because you're in Death Valley. However, if you go online, you can find still shots of the scenes where R2-D2 and C-3PO are on the sand dunes, and there's that big skeleton, and then the stormtroopers come, and one of them picks up a part and says, look, sir, droids. That, all that stuff, 
is filmed in Death Valley, and it's pretty easy to get to. You don't have to do a whole lot of hiking to get there. I took a group of people out there with a photo from the movie and had them stand in the exact spot and then held the photo up and showed them the mountains. And they got a photo op standing exactly where C-3PO and, and R2-D2 were, which is kind of fun. And again, this wasn't a big hike. It was like literally five minutes from the parking area. The scene where the Jawas capture R2-D2 is also filmed in Death Valley. That's near Zabriski Point. That requires a little bit more hiking, but it's also doable if that's your thing. So, hey, if you want to visit Tatooine in a not-too-difficult way, Stovepipe Wells is the place. And it's also an interesting place to visit anyway. There's there's all kinds of crazy history there. There's the Burnt Wagon Point is there and the Devil's Cornfield and these massive, massive sand dunes that you can crawl on that are just kind of fun. Stovepipe Wells, I'll have a link in the show notes. You definitely want to check it out if you're ever in that part of the country. Whew, well, this went kind of long. I'm going to save the resource recommendation for next week. So thank you very much for listening to episode 111. I'm very happy that you return week after week. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And may this be the year where COVID becomes a memory rather than a daily obstacle. And until next time, remember these words by Steve Jobs. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. <laughs>